Well, good evening. It's good to be with y'all. Let me ask you if you would to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians. I want to look at a text of Scripture there with you. <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 5, which is a text that I think is about purity. And maybe what I'll do is read... Ephesians 5 verses 1 um, to about 12, and then we'll say what we can say about it and be done. So Ephesians 5, starting in verse 1, it says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. For the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try, uh, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it's shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. So, I was asked to speak about sexual purity. And I think that this is a text about sexual purity. And I want to try to say several different things about that tonight. This is a text uh, that emphasizes, I think, sexual behavior. But... Before we talk about what the text says, because what the, what the text emphasizes when it emphasizes sexual behavior is the kinds of things that we should not take part in, and it emphasizes what we ought to do if we find that this is a struggle for us. But the priority in the Bible, just in terms of chronology, uh, is not the trouble that we face, but is God's intended design. If we're going to talk about biblical purity, if we're going to talk about what it means to be pure as a man, we've got to begin where God began, which is the creation, and uh, in particular the institution of the covenant of marriage. And in that covenant, God made sex to be a true blessing. It's easy as Christians living in a fallen world to sort of emphasize the sexual sin uh, that we struggle with and that the Bible calls us to put off uh, even as we put on righteousness. But the Bible doesn't start with sexual sin. And we are in danger when we have conversations about sexuality as Christians and in particular as men if we only emphasize the do nots, if we only emphasize the immorality in the sexual conversation. And we need to be people who get together and celebrate the fact that sex is a really good thing. Uh, and when the Lord made it, it was his idea, his creation, we would have no access to this 
sexual behavior or to sexual thoughts if the Lord had not dreamed this up and then given us uh, bodies where we could realize those kinds of things. And so this is a really good thing. Uh, it, is, uh, it is delightful for us to be able to have sex. Um, the, the issue is uh, that God makes us to have sex in the context of one man and one woman in Christian marriage. Uh, and so we're not allowed to sort of hijack the blessing of sexuality and have it on any terms. But the, it is a blessing in and of itself. It is a created good. And we have to be really careful because the reality is, even in a room full of men, we can get nervous about this. Um, we, can, um, we can start to think that when we talk about sex being a good thing or it being an enjoyable thing, um, we, we can be nervous that we're going to get a little carried away. We can be nervous that we're going to say things that are inappropriate. Um, we need to be clear that the reason we feel uncomfortable uh, speaking about sex is not because sex is a bad thing, but because we have tainted sex with our sin and we have created a good thing to be a bad thing. Uh, but God didn't create it to be a bad thing. God created it to be a good thing. And so I just want to have us pause. We're going to have to talk about some difficulties. We're going to have to talk about some struggles. Um, but the reality is we talk about a struggle with sexuality only after sin enters the picture. Sex is a good thing, and we need to acknowledge that together, we need to celebrate that together, and we need to uh, be always sure that Christians don't sound like the people who uh, don't think sex is any fun, or something like that. Um, in fact, what, what we would say is what the Bible says, which is, I want, the Bible wants, God wants you to have all the sex you can handle. And God wants you to really enjoy that. Uh, he just wants you to have it um, within the confines of the good blessing that he set up. Because it's, it's when you start trying to steal the blessings of sex outside of marriage that it becomes a bad thing. And after we say that, that leads us into one of the main emphases of this text, which is that it prohibits sexual immorality. Notice it prohibits sexual immorality. It does not prohibit sex. Uh, it, it prohibits sex outside of the confines of biblical marriage. Um, and God here, I say prohibits sexual immorality, and, and there's a long list, actually, in Ephesians 5 of the cons of immoral things that God forbids. If you look at verse 3, he begins the list with sexual immorality. He says sexual immorality, and then he goes on. Sexual immorality is the first thing in the list that we're not allowed to participate in. Um, when the Bible talks about sexual immorality here, it's talking about overt sexual acts, the things that um, spring into our mind as rather obvious examples of immorality. We're talking about um, fornication. So this would be sex before you get married. We're talking about adultery. This would be uh, sex while you're married, but outside of the context of your marriage. We're talking about homosexuality. Um, that is 
controversial today. It's not controversial in the Bible uh, to prohibit homosexuality, sex between members of the same sexes. Um, This is an obvious example of sexual immorality. Pornography, um, where we look at uh, people committing acts of adultery and fornication. Uh, These are overt, obviously sexual, immoral acts, and the Bible forbids them. It's something that we're not allowed to participate in. But then it goes further. Sexual immorality and all impurity. What's going on here? Well, I think impurity in the context, and this will even become a little more clear here in just a moment, it is behavior that is not the overtly sexual acts that I just mentioned as exemplary of sexual immorality, but it's behavior that pushes the line further away from purity and towards sexual immorality. So it's, it's line pushing. It's um, when we look at images that's not porn... It's when we do things with members of the opposite sex where we say, well, we didn't have sex, you know, that kind of thing. It's line pushing. It's where we're, we're moving away from the high standard of purity and towards the standard of sexual immorality. Sexual immorality, all impurity or covetousness. That's a fascinating thing to have on the list here. Um, this sounds like Jesus' teaching. And the Sermon on the Mount. If you look at a woman to lust, you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. Um, this is uh, the same idea here. Uh, you are not allowed to want sexual things that God says are bad for you. So if you've never committed adultery, if you've never fornicated, if you've never looked at pornography, if you've never indulged in homosexual sin, you cannot then say, I'm pure. Because if you've ever wanted any of those things, and all of us have, if we've ever wanted those things, then the standard of purity is not one that we've realized in our own life. And that's not all. Sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper, of the, proper among the saints. And then he goes on in verse 4. Let there be no filthiness. There's another idea that is ruled out on the grounds of biblical purity. Filthiness. This is obscene talk and foul language about sex. It's, it's the use of dirty words. It's, it's the use of filthy talk to characterize the sexual relationship. It's interesting. Um, Sometimes you'll see even Christians having a conversation about which words are we allowed to use and which ones aren't we allowed to use. And sometimes the Christians that are having that conversation will actually use the words uh, as they tell us we shouldn't use them. And it's interesting that's very different than the model that the Apostle Paul presents for us here. The Apostle Paul says, no filthiness. It's as though he's saying, there's a category of filthy talk. You know what it is, and I know what it is, and you don't need me to give you an example. Uh, we just it's, it's in this category, and it's obvious. He, he operates under the assumption that it's obvious. He doesn't treat us like idiots. Uh, he says it's obvious, and you ought to not talk about it. So we ought to 
not talk about it. Let there be no filthiness nor foolish talk. This is reckless talk about sex that does not honor how sacred and how holy it is. There are all kinds of examples of foolish talk, reckless talk that doesn't honor how holy God made it to be. It's, it's talk that if you engage in, it's, it's folly. It will get you in trouble. So examples like being flirtatious. A flirt is someone who speaks to you or is a way you speak to someone else to arouse their sexual desire, to arouse their covetousness. That's an example of foolish talk. When you talk in that way, you are acting like a fool because you're moving towards sexual immorality and away from purity. Another example is sometimes the way people even well-intentioned will confess their sin. So I am helping guys all of the time who got in trouble uh, because they were a part of a group of men who were trying to be godly and somebody confessed their sin with a ton of detail that beyond just confessing their sin, it pointed other people in the room to where they could go find sexual immorality. Um, I was looking at pornography and I went to www.wherever.com. Wherever.com is not a pornographic website. I'm not violating my own principle here. Um, uh, uh, but... Um, there was, uh, in fact, I just, as, as a matter of principle, I don't talk about the names of websites and I don't talk about the names of magazines even when they're popular and everybody knows what they are because I'm not going to be the person to introduce somebody into it that's never heard about it. And uh, some of this is just because of my experience counseling. I, I had a man who was completely hooked on pornography and he got hooked because he was listening to Christian radio and uh, one of the guests on this program was talking about a pornographic website, and he was curious. He never looked at it. He was a grown man, never looked at pornography, but he was curious about it, went hunting on that uh, website. Next thing, 10 years later, he's completely enslaved to pornography. We have to be really careful that we don't engage in reckless talk that points people to immorality and away from impurity. He says... Um, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking. This is dirty jokes. God does not want you to take something that he made to be holy and pure and righteous and good and then joke about its perversion. What is... Uh, wrong with us when the television programming that we watch or the movies that we watch uh, so much of the dialogue is built around making a mockery of what God created to be good and its perversion sends people to hell it is, it is a reckless sinful impure act 
to joke about the perversity of something that God made to be good. And so this is, this is a, a list that indicts every one of us. When we think about purity, most of the time, even for Christians, we're thinking about the things at the top of the list, the most obvious, the overt acts of sexual immorality. But the Apostle Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, gets more and more subtle. So that we get to this point where you're not allowed to even want those acts of immorality. You're not allowed to joke about other people that do. The biblical standard for purity is higher than any place else you would ever look for an ethical standard. And that's why Christians are in so much trouble over this these days. But that's the prohibition against sexual immorality. It is forbidden. Uh, And every manifestation of it is forbidden. And it's not just that it's forbidden, it's that God includes harsh penalties when we jump into it. He says in verse 4, which we just looked at, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. Verse 5, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that's an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Paul gives the strongest possible warning against those who would engage in acts of sexual immorality, against those who would push the line toward sexual immorality, and against those who even desire sexual immorality. He says, you'll go to hell when you do this. If you even want it, if you even want this bad thing, you will go to hell. And in the context of uh, some Christian men gathered around, some Christian men gathered around, who probably struggle with some of the things on that list, and who might be tempted to go, glad I'm saved. Glad I'm, glad I'm trusting in Jesus. I don't want to go to hell. He says, let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. The Apostle Paul gives a warning that you'll go to hell if you do this. And we are not allowed to say, well, at least I made a decision for Christ 10 years ago. Uh, once saved, always saved. So I can, uh, I can do what I want. I can look at all the dirty pictures I want. I can lust in my heart all I want because once saved, always saved. That's not what this says. He says, don't let anybody deceive you. Here's my tremendously insightful wisdom into the text for tonight. The Apostle Paul says, don't let anybody deceive you because he was afraid somebody would come along and try to deceive you. And there are people who will say, 
It's just a little bit of lust. Just just a little bit of line pushing. Don't worry about that. God will forgive you. The issue in this text is not once saved, always saved. And by the way, I believe that when you come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, John 10 says that you're in the grip of the Son and in the grip of the Father. So you're in the double grip of God. But people who are truly saved by Jesus Christ will have the saving grace to cause them to turn from these kinds of acts. And if you don't experience the grace of Jesus Christ to turn from sexual immorality, then you have not experienced his grace to be saved. And you ought not to say, it's no big deal. Because I'm looking at some pictures. It's no big deal. Because I'm lusting in my heart. It's no big deal. Because I'm trying to get somebody to commit adultery with me. Paul says, don't you be deceived. There are the highest possible consequences in the Bible when you turn from purity to sexual immorality. What's the big deal? I mean, Paul, calm down. Just a little sex. The dude we invited to Man Up Monday said uh, it's a blast. It, uh, it's fun. And God made it to be fun. So uh, what's, what's the big deal? What is the problem with looking at some pictures? Or with a little flirting every now and then? Well, the problem, I think, is in the first two verses of Ephesians 5. He says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children... And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This text tells us that Jesus Christ loved us and he gave himself up for us. Jesus Christ loved you and me in a selfless way. And think think about it like this. Think about... The love of Jesus Christ, the selfless love of Jesus for you and for me being the goal of our new life in Christ and being the ground of our new life in Christ. Jesus Christ and his selfless love is the goal of our new life in Christ. We are to want to be like Jesus. How, how was Jesus? It says, be imitators of God as beloved children. That's a big thing. You ever pause and just think about it? Be imitators of, it doesn't say the Apostle Paul. It doesn't say the Apostle Matthew. It doesn't say Luke Bray. It says, be imitators of God. What, how do you do that? What does that look like? Well, Fleshes out a little bit. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. As we imitate God, if we want to grow to be godly, well, that means we have to grow to be like Jesus Christ. And the model that we're given is the way that Jesus Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. So we are supposed to read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we're supposed to watch how Jesus acted. And we're supposed to go and do that. 
That's what this says. We are supposed to look at Jesus and be as loving and selfless as he was. Think about this. Think about how loving and selfless Jesus was in the context of sexual immorality. This, I think it's appropriate for us, to quest, for us to ask the question, not just because that's the topic of the conversation tonight, but because the text demands it. Um, it is clear to me, the Apostle Paul says in the first two verses of Ephesians 5, uh, you need to imitate God by being like Jesus. And it's obvious that he thinks one of the number one threats to us emulating the love of Jesus is sexual immorality. And the reason it's obvious to me that he thinks that's one of the number one threats is because as soon as he finishes verses 1 and 2, he says verse 3. But sexual immorality. It's amazing that the Apostle Paul is sitting, writing the book of Ephesians, and he wants us to love like Jesus, and the Spirit inspires him to write down that one of the main threats to that will be our sinful sex. So let's think about Jesus' purity. Here's one example. Think about Jesus and the woman at the well. He's alone with this woman. And this woman was promiscuous. She'd already made herself available to five men that we know about sexually. Those were, those were men she'd been married to. She might have made herself sexually available to other people. We don't know. This would be a temptation. We've got, um, we've got a woman here who obviously admires this person. She's asking him questions that communicate honor and respect. She's... Uh, She's made herself sexually available to other men. And what does Jesus do? I'll tell you what he doesn't do. He spends no time thinking about how he could say something that would communicate subtly. He's interested in her, but is not so bold that she could make an accusation. He, uh, he spends no time trying to figure out how to lure her into an improper relationship. What he does do is spend all of his energy trying to help her see the path to eternal life. He doesn't want to do anything that would lay a stone of stumbling in front of this woman and lead her away from life and heaven and joy and purity. We are, as we imitate God and walk in love as Christ loved us, we're supposed to do that. Every woman that we look at, we're supposed to want to help her find Christ. We're supposed to want to die to ourselves and help her grow in the kind of holiness that leads to eternal life. And as I look around this room, and I know very few people, the only men I see are men who have not behaved in this way throughout their whole life. We're all guilty. You're looking at me and you see the same thing. You don't know my story maybe, but all of us have blown it in this regard. All of us know what it is to look at a woman, many women, or a man, or whatever, 
and want something sexually that God says is bad. We're not like Jesus. Don't imitate him. And so if this text is only about Jesus as the goal for purity, then we'll all have to despair together tonight. But it's not just about the goal of purity. Jesus also serves as the ground for our pursuit of purity. That is the foundation. That is, he makes it possible. As beloved children, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Jesus doesn't just provide a model to us for how to love. In loving us in the selfless way that he did, he purchases us for God and buys us back from our sin, from the wrath of God, so that it is possible for us to do this impossible thing. We can love the way Jesus loved, not because we're so great, not because we have our own resources, but because the very reason that Jesus came was to purchase our ability to do it. And so Jesus' selfless and sacrificial love not only provides a model for us about how to love other people, but it also secures our ability to do it sooner or later. This is a message of hope. Because you can do it. No matter what your struggle is, we all have them. The grace of Jesus Christ to save you is more powerful than the strength of sin to damn you. That's good news. The big deal with sexual immorality, that's where I started when I started talking about this. What's the big deal? Hell? Really? For a little fun? The, the reason it's so bad is because sexual immorality is hateful. It's at odds with the selfless love of Jesus Christ. Think about it this way. When, when you want something sexually immoral, let's just talk about the, the covetous part of it. Start kind of at the ground level. When you want something sexually that's not yours, you want something good and you also want something bad. The good thing you want is the good blessing that we talked about at the beginning. You want to experience physical pleasure. Not a thing in the world wrong with that. Very few of us choose physical pain over physical pleasure. That's a good thing. You don't, you don't have to love pain to be a good Christian. So you want, you want the physical pleasure of sex. You want that good thing. You want... To have the object of your affection bear herself before you. That's a good thing. Not a thing in the world wrong with that. You want the object of your affection to have sexual desire for you. Most people aren't content. Sexual sin isn't completed when all you want is the other person. You want them to want you back. That's a good thing. This is actually, I think, that I want you to bear yourself to me. And I want you to want me to bear myself to you. I think that is summarized in the biblical teaching that they were naked and unashamed. 
we want a, a relationship where we are naked and enjoy it, and we want that to culminate in physical pleasure. When you want that, you want a great thing. But here's the thing you... So that's the good thing you want, but there's a bad thing you want. And the bad thing you want when you want sexual immorality is you want that without love. You want that with no relationship. You want that with a person who does not love you on God's terms. You want that with a person and you don't care what their problems are. You don't care if you could help them or not. You want that with a person, but you don't want them to grow old. Most, most men don't lust after elderly women. They lust after young women. Because I don't want my love and my sexual desire to be seasoned with age. I, want, uh, I don't want something long term. I want it to be short. And that's not the kind of love and fulfillment that God calls us to. And so it's, it's hateful. You want these good things, but you want the bad thing. You, you want those good things apart from a committed relationship of love that sacrifices and grows with someone over the long haul. It's hateful, sexual immorality is. If, uh, if we get our sexual desires, we'll all... The, our unhinged sexual desires will all die lonely, alone, sad, and with cold hearts. That's, that's the problem. Sexual immorality is hateful. It, uh, it makes our daughters think that they're good as long as they're young and pretty and they get naked when we want them to. But if they want to stay covered up and when they get old, they don't matter anymore. I got a daughter. That's hateful. I don't want people thinking about my daughter that way. You don't want people thinking about your daughter that way either. It's hateful. So how do we get away from it? How do we move away from sexual immorality? Let me talk about a couple things. First of all, we need to fight for this kind of love that Jesus talks about. It's not enough to turn away from sexual immorality and impurity and covetousness and foolish talk and filthy talk and coarse joking. It's not enough to turn away from that. We have to move in the direction of love. We turn away from hate and we turn towards love. So we fight for love. We fight to see Jesus Christ and to love others the way he loves us, and to love him more than we love our immorality and our impurity. And a second thing we can do is to fight for thankfulness. This is fascinating in um, verses 3 and 4. It gives us a list of stuff we ought to not do. Sexual immorality and all impurity and covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. I remember the first time I read that and a light bulb went off. I'm sure I'd read it other times before I really got it, but I remember the first time I read it and I got it. And if you think about it, the Holy Spirit 
inspired the Apostle Paul to write those verses down. And the Holy Spirit could have inspired the Apostle Paul to write anything he wanted. He could have said, not this sexual immorality, but instead let there be joy. But that's not what it says. He could have said, not sexual immorality, but instead let there be faithfulness. Faithfulness is a perfectly good thing. But that's not what the Holy Spirit had Paul write. He could have said, not sexual immorality, but instead let there be peace. Peace is a delightful thing. If you've got peace, you have a good blessing. But that's not what the Apostle Paul wrote. He said, when you're getting rid of sexual immorality, get rid of all that stuff, and in its place, put on thanksgiving. Be thankful. So we we have to sit and think here for a minute. Why is it so important for us to to replace impurity with thankfulness? Well, I think we understand why that's the case when you understand what covetousness is. Covetousness is at the root of sexual immorality. And what covetousness is, is the desire for something you don't have. That's what covetous means. You are covetous when you want something the Lord has not given you. So it is the logic of covetousness to keep wanting what you don't have. This is why sexual sin gets worse. Um, This is why marriage is not the cure for pornography and masturbation. Uh, People think, once once I get married... Uh, I won't be doing this stuff anymore because I'll be having legitimate sex. And that's not true. What you're doing is you are training your body to want what you don't have. And then one day you get married and um, you'll have your wife. But covetousness wants what it doesn't have. And so you won't be content for very long before you start wanting the thing that's not your wife. And then if you ever get a hold of that, now you've got it. And covetousness wants what it doesn't have. So you want the thing after that. And it keeps getting, as my memo used to say, worser and worser. So covetousness, you can't cure covetousness by getting what you want. Because all you're doing is feeding the beast if you give a mouse a cookie and all that. So you fight sexual immorality with thankfulness because thankfulness is the opposite disposition of the heart from covetousness. Covetousness wants what it doesn't have. Thankfulness is content with everything the Lord has given. I'm thankful. Thankfulness says, what I have now is what the Lord thinks I need. And anything I don't have right now is something that the Lord knows if I had it right now, it would be bad for me. Thankfulness is the logic of, if we knew perfectly what was best for us, as the Lord does, we would never want anything more or less than what we have from Him. That's what thankfulness says. And so... We fight impurity with gratitude. If you're not married, another bold, brave insight into your life tonight, God thinks it'd be bad for you to be married right now. If God thought it was good for you to be married right now, you'd be married. But if you're not, God thinks that's bad for you. You can trust the Lord. And so you can be thankful for your not marriage. And if you are married... You need to be thankful for your wife, whatever she looks like. You know, the Bible Bible never describes an ideal beauty of woman, ever. The only thing it does is it commands men to desire their wife. 
Proverbs 5, rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe, may her breast fill you at all times with delight. You, you are supposed to insert your wife's picture into that text. It doesn't say men prefer blondes or brunettes are better. When you read the Bible, the Bible gets you thinking about your wife and wants you to desire her. And whatever she looks like, if it's, uh, uh, if you're 22 and newly married, if you're 36 and you've got three kids, if you're 65 and you've got three grandkids, you're, whatever your wife looks like is what you're supposed to desire. And when you move from sexual immorality and say, I'm not going to do that, but I'm going to turn and I'm going to desire my wife, and you grow in gratitude for her, then I'll just tell you, and some of you know this, Sex becomes so much more fulfilling. Because when you come together with your wife in the marriage bed, and you are experiencing this woman that has been the object of your grateful desire, you have what you want. You have what you've been desiring. And it is an incredible experience. In a way that it can't be when you're going through the sexual motions, but you've been nurturing objects of desire of another woman. Because you don't have what you want. It's frustrating. Sad. There's a lot we could say about this. I'll just say one more thing about fighting this. We need to fight for honesty. We read, um, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it's shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret, but when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. The text is saying we have to be honest about our sexual sin. The people I know, and I know a lot of them, the people I know who are in the most trouble for sexual immorality are the people who are never honest. They're the people who say, I can't talk about that. They're the people who say, If I told my pastor about that, uh, he'd never want to speak to me again. If I told my best friend about that, he'd think I was a sinner. And the Bible says you've got to expose the darkness to the light. We've got uh, in the backyard where we live, uh, we've got some rocks in the back, and my boys love to go to those rocks, particularly after it rains, and they pull them up. And you know what's under there. Filthiness. Mud, bugs, everything. And they love to see it. They love to try to catch whatever they can find. But when they pull the rock off, what happens? They scatter. Because that kind of nastiness can't thrive in the light. It requires darkness for that to survive. Same thing with sin. You have to expose the darkness to the light because sin only thrives when it's dark. And as soon as you expose it to the light, the the text says whatever has been exposed by the light becomes light. Isn't that funny? It's not saying that what was sinful becomes unsinful, but it says what you were concealing and is an object of sin now becomes an object of righteousness on your part because you have exposed the sin. You've taken what was to your shame and you've brought it into the light and now it is light. I'll tell you, I have got 
depending on the season of my life, I've had three, four, or five men who just know where all the bodies are buried in my life. And they are people that when I'm tempted, I pick up the phone and I call and I say, um, here's what's going on. I'm struggling. I've been struggling with lust um, or whatever. I've been struggling with this, that, or the other thing. I need advice, help. There are times when I have had to call some of those guys and admit that I am a sinner. In concrete, not, not in the general socially acceptable way it is for me to do right now. I'm a sinner. It's like, okay, what's the big deal? Well, uh, get on the other end of the phone and listen to what I've been up to. And it's not general anymore. It's concrete. It's a little different. And I've had to make those phone calls. And it's not fun. It's not fun to say, I got to tell you, I sinned. And you need to know what it was. And in those moments when I've done what so much of me has not wanted to do, I can also tell you that as hard as it is, it's in the moment of saying it that I've also felt the most relief. And I felt it get off my back. And I felt true freedom because whatever gets exposed by the light becomes light. And sin can't thrive anymore once it's out in the open. It's, it's, it's an interesting thing. There's some things in life that when you try to get them, you don't get them. Um, life is actually one of those things. Jesus says, if you try to save your life, you're going to lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you'll get it. So Jesus just takes the whole thing and he upends it. The same thing with uh, most of us. Most of us want a reputation for holiness. But if we try to get a reputation for holiness without a willingness to be honest with at least some people that we're not so holy after all, we'll never have it. Because you have to expose the darkness to the light. So, sexual immorality. This is an, I'm so thankful for this uh, this group of guys here tonight. I, I think I've spoken at three or four, I think three or four of these Man Up Mondays, and I love it. I love the opportunity to get together with guys and talk about things that matter. I think the big deal, I think the thing that's eaten the church alive is uh, sexual sin, sexual immorality. And this is a text that reminds us that sexual sin is a really serious problem. It is a text... It's a text that reminds us that sexual purity is a good thing uh, because uh, sexual purity is about the kind of love that Jesus Christ emulates. And it's a text that's really practical as it tells us the way we can move away from sexual immorality and towards sexual purity. And apart from those strategies that we just talked about, it's, it's a passage that highlights that if we're going to do that, it's going to take the grace of Jesus Christ, who was perfectly pure, and we find in Ephesians 5, 1 to 2, he was pure on our behalf as a ransom to God for us. Let me pray. Father, I don't know the stories and the challenges that exist in this room, but Father, you do. And I pray that you would take your word and you would press it into our hearts and you would give us a great love for sexual purity. 
you would give us a great hatred for sexual immorality, that you would turn our eyes to Jesus Christ and help us to come to him in repentant faith, uh, to seek to emulate the love that we see from him and to fight sexual immorality. And Father, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.